It's Wednesday, February 7th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are a couple phrases that no good ever stems from, no good ever follows when you hear them. You know trouble's on the way. I'll give you a couple examples. A disgruntled ex-employee stop. Nothing from that point forward is going to be good news. It's never a disgruntled ex-employee taught the youth of the community how to make shadow puppets. No bad things happen. Here's another one. Radical cleric. Right? You never hear about the radical cleric, I don't know, dispensing licorice. I mean, I'm sure to their grandkids, radical clerics are just grandpa, and they give a good back scratch. But here's another one. Here's another phrase, along with disgruntled ex-employee, radical cleric, congressional Republicans. I'm not saying this as a category, or it's forever been true, but it has been trending this way for a while. And yesterday, I think it really got there with no good springing forth from the wellspring of congressional Republicans. Yesterday, congressional Republicans sought to impeach for the first time in over 100 years a cabinet secretary, and they thought they'd gotten there, but they had three defectors, and Alejandro Mayorkas narrowly escaped when Democratic Representative Al Green said, let's stay together, Democrats, and they did. The guy showed up from a hospital wearing scrubs, cast a vote, It turns out when Steve Scalise gets out of the hospital, he will join the other congressional Republicans and probably impeach Mayorkas. What else did congressional Republicans do or not do? They blew up a bipartisan agreement on the border. Enough of them got together and did that. And the next one that congressional Republicans did, not all the congressional Republicans, not even most, but a highly concentrated version. They're very virulent when you get them in such high concentration, as was the case with the following resolution as proposed by a disgruntled current employee, Matt Gates. We have 63 co-sponsors to the resolution that Ms. Stefanik and I will be filing today to express the sense of Congress that President Trump did not uh, commit an insurrection. I want to express my gratitude to Senator Vance for filing the companion legislation over in the Senate. And now it's time for members of the House and Senate to show where they stand on this question. The resolution says Congress is saying it is the sense of Congress that Donald Trump did not commit an insurrection. So who were the sponsors and the co-sponsors? I went over the names of all 63. Maybe some have joined since yesterday. Counting just those who could cast a vote in 2021, in other words, were Congress, members of Congress then, could cast a vote to certify the election, all but four voted not to certify the election. That group, the ones who voted not to certify the election, they've been called the Sedition Caucus, not just by mean people online or members of the Young Turks community, but that's the Wikipedia entry, the Sedition Caucus. They have been called the Sedition Caucus. That's different from Sukaucus. The Sedition Caucus, that's their name on Wikipedia. And yesterday, you could look through the list of the Sedition Caucus and from that list get Almost every member of Congress who was there then, who was sponsoring this, nah, it wasn't an insurrection resolution now. By the way, of the four who voted to uh, 
decertify the election. One had COVID and three, I guess, I mean, I know the particular circumstances, two had, I guess, a change of heart and one was going to vote to decertify. Then there was this riot, this intervening event. Some call it an insurrection. And Representative Michael Waltz of Florida said, no, now's not the time to decertify. But I guess he's saying, as are his fellow congressional Republicans, now is the time to say Donald Trump did not insurrect. You could say it is all perhaps more than a bit self-serving and serving Georgia's 14th district, a strong vote for decertification and this resolution, Congressional Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene. You have the freedom of press, one of the greatest rights in this entire world. And anyone that puts the word insurrectionist, calls President Trump an insurrectionist, and calls any of us an insurrectionist is a liar and you do not deserve the power that you possess. Shame on you. Shame on you. And we thought that the Sedition Caucus Non-Insurgency Emergency Task Force was shameless, apparently not. Taylor Green has enough shame to spread it around to others. On the show today, no spiel, but two interviews. Because tomorrow, the Supreme Court will hear arguments over Colorado's decision to remove Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot for those who pay attention to the court. So we have booked an expert in the area of the Constitution. He is Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and author of Pursuit of Happiness. He shall help us understand the importance and impact of this case. But first, DEI Week continues apace on the gist. I bring you part two of my conversation with Coleman Hughes, author of the book, The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? We are back now with Coleman Hughes. He is the author of The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. And yesterday we discussed the idea of colorblindness in society. That will set the scene for the conversation today. And I wanted to ask Coleman about racial categories, which sometimes can seem attenuated, sometimes restrictive, sometimes wacky. Uh, Hispanic, sometimes it's Brazilian, mostly it's not, white Cuban Batista ally who fled with all his wealth. Another category that Coleman writes about, the Hmong. The Hmong are, of course, a marginalized group, but sometimes when they're grouped together in the larger group of Asian Americans, they're treated as not marginalized because Asian Americans actually have higher economic outcomes comes than white Americans, but the Hmong don't, the Vietnamese don't. So you see that these categories are really sometimes not that useful. And one reason that Coleman does point to this confusion in his book is the rhetorical reason of saying, well, if you object to race blindness, this, this is what you get. This is the outgrowth of extreme race consciousness. But my question for Coleman is this, do you think that the people pursuing this are earnest that they have found an imperfect enough way to get to essentially a good solution, taking into account race and trying to figure out which races are more advantaged or less advantaged? 
Or do you think it's all just a power play? That now that they have power, they could use these concepts, they could use the concept of colorblindness to accrue more power, maybe to right some wrongs in their mind. But basically, for the first time uh, in the history of the United States, they have some degree of power and they're just going to use it. It's a good question. I think people's motives are mixed. Um, you know, the most charitable interpretation is most of m- most people really believe it. Most anti-racists really are concerned about racism and have unfortunately fallen for bad ideas about how to address it. And I think that's true of many, many people. On the other hand, you know, hu- human nature contains pretty nasty elements, and those elements infect politics to, to a very high degree. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that anti-racism of the kind that Kendi and D'Angelo advocate, um, I'm talking about Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, who I go go after quite a bit in my book, uh, it, does, it does often become a, uh, a, a kind of Trojan horse for just straight up, you know, reverse racism. Uh, you know, so for example, though I've heard so many people say they, all they want to do is eliminate disparities between races. Not, not once have I heard such a person care about any disparity other than one in which black people are on the short end relative to white, white people. I've never heard someone who claims to want to equalize all disparities as their headline and then got to the rest of the article and seen them concerned about a disparity that put whites below Asians, for example. Mm-hmm. I've seen many, many diseases talked about where black people suffer from such a disease worse than white people, for example. But there are, and I think I list them in the book, like, you know, more than five different kinds of cancer that flip in the other direction where whites are more likely to die than blacks. I've never seen a single person who claims to want to equalize all disparities even mention those disparities. I've never seen right. I've never seen them, for instance, care about the rather large and important uh, disparity, if you care about disparities as such, um, you know, the fact that the white suicide rate is significantly higher than the black suicide rate. So what am I supposed to draw from this? When I hear people say, like Kendi, when I see disparities, I see racism, but then you double click and you see that they only care about the disparities which black people lose out from, then I have to conclude that the concern about disparities for many people is actually masking a concern, uh, what, what is really a philosophy that that you know, black people and people of color should be equal to or better than whites in every domain possible, right? Which is, I'm not sure, would you call that black supremacy or POC supremacy or reverse racism? Whatever you want to call it, it's, it's not a principled concern for disparity as such. I think there's there's a fundamental misperception that disparities equal racism, when in reality, disparities going in every which direction are the norm, not the exception. Yes, uh, that's true. 
disparities are all over the place, but with so many, in, if I asked a hundred reasonable people, give me uh, 10 statistics, a hundred statistics that will best encapsulate the American experience, uh, what can, what's considered flourishing and what's not. Things like health, wealth, uh, mental health, um, incarceration, let's say. Um, I haven't done this, but it very much seems the case that white people are better off by what we would agree as the metrics of flourishing than black people. And I don't think it's just because I concentrate on the statistics where black people are doing worth, like the, the wealth gap or income or educational attainment. I don't think that's the reason. There's a lot of noise there, but it is generally true that there are a lot of disparities where black Americans are much worse off than white Americans. Or do you disagree? I agree. I think almost all of them, uh, with the exception of suicide, almost all of the, say, top 10 disparities a typical person would think of, black people are doing worse than whites. If you look at that fact in isolation, it's easy for a rational person to conclude, well, can't be a coincidence that African-Americans, the group that were enslaved in this country and then subjected to legalized white supremacy for another hundred years after that, just so happened to be on the bottom of all of these disparities. So you're going to argue that that's a coincidence. Right. Um, Now, if instead you actually zoom out and look at the whole landscape of inter and intra-racial disparities, that is disparities between ethnic groups, there is simply no way to make sense of the hypothesis that discrimination past or present or both is the main driver of disparities. So I'm not going to tell you that the history of discrimination plays no role in those disparities. It surely plays some role. But if you're actually trying to build a model of which groups succeed and why on which particular metrics, you cannot build a model if discrimination is your main input. But the legacy of de jure racism certainly shows up in things like wealth inequality because we build wealth by a number of ways, but owning a house and home ownership was greatly impeded by, say, redlining policies or the GI Bill or Jim Crow laws in the South. So, I mean, that's a factor. That's a big factor, I would say, when it comes to that particular disparity. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, the biggest factor with respect to wealth, in particular, because just the post-World War II boom, suburban boom, where you could get a house at the perfect time and just ride out the the multiple uh, the multiples in, in wealth accumulation between, say, 1945 and 1980. I mean, to have gotten into the housing market at that time is uh, almost a singular opportunity that, who knows, may never again come in American history. And, right. uh, you know, white people were the, the, the most able and the, the, they had the least friction in, in getting into that market. So, yeah, I don't doubt that at all. On the other hand, you know, many of the problems blamed on the legacy of slavery, it, it, the mere timing doesn't match up. So, for example, it's often uh, blamed on the legacy, legacy of slavery, the fact that 
there are so many single parent homes in the black community and something like two thirds of kids are born out of wedlock, which is a, a, a huge social problem. But, you know, if you look back at the data from the 1930s and 40s when slavery and Jim Crow were more proximate and racism more intense, it just wasn't a problem at all. Like that, there just was almost no difference between two parent households in the black community and, and white community. Um, and there are other there are other problems like this. So I, I do think far too many problems get blamed on the legacy of slavery, uh, wealth being the the probably the best example of 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 one that really was quite affected what about i was trying to think of what are some policies where colorblindness wouldn't be the best way to go wouldn't be the best solution to ameliorate problems so before i get to a couple of these i just want to ask you is your premise that colorblindness should be embraced all the time or in the pendulum between colorblindness and I guess we'll call it anti-racism, we've swung way too far in the anti-racism direction, but there are some occasions where not having colorblindness or taking race into account in terms of our remedies would be best. I would say neither. I, I would put it a third way. As, as a philosophy major, I've learned that basically any principle can suffer from edge cases that require you to violate it. You know, like I, I believe you shouldn't torture people until there's a, a, a nuclear bomb in Times Square and you have to get the information, right? So I view colorblindness as the default principle for public policy unless you give me a situation that that is just so compelling that it becomes the exception to the rule. Okay. So with that in mind, I read an interesting study about the better care that newborns get from black doctors. Uh, speaking, this isn't maternal mortality, but it's um, infant mortality. Mm. And it seems a pretty robust study. And uh, it seems, I, I believe the finding. It's not a huge finding. And it could be for a lot of reasons. You know, a black doctor takes an extra three minutes with every one of his black patients, her black patients, just because they feel this uh, connection to the community or kinship or whatever. Who knows? But it's just the case. And what we want is to lower infant mortality. Should there be a government program or would you be against a government program that acknowledges this, that tries to fund um, black doctors in black communities to try to underwrite that, knowing that it's likely, or at least this study and maybe other studies like it show better outcomes for infants. Yeah, probably. I mean, it, it, I, as a thought experiment, I'll accept that this finding is true. You know, I won't argue against any policy that reduces infant mortality and saves babies. So if it works... And it says, we're going to give money for black doctors. There'll be a supplement for black doctors to move to these areas. That's the sort of thing that you would say you accept it. Sure. I think, uh, uh, yeah, if you, if you can show me a race-based policy with just cold, hard evidence just saves lives. Yeah. Uh, child's lives, then I, I will have no problem making that the exception to to my rule. Um, though, you know, in, in the, in the real world, rather than in, in, in a, in a study, 
um you know if you look at what's actually happened often it's it's the opposite uh it's that race-based policies are somehow so popular with people that people overlook the fact that they are killing people or, or they're allowing more people to die than than would be necessary so for example i write in my book and, and yasha monk also written wrote in his recent book about the recommendation that was given by a working team at the cdc to prioritize uh, essential workers to get the vaccine rather than the elderly because the elderly as a group were disproportionately white this is because <laughs> Uh, this is because white yeah. people are on average so, uh, at the median like 10 years older than black people and 20 years older than Hispanics, something like that. So older people are disproportionately white and therefore we should not prioritize them to get the vaccine. We should prioritize essential workers, which includes everything from bank tellers to baristas because that's a more racially diverse population. Even though the working team at the CDC acknowledged that it would kill more people fewer more people yeah. would die but they'd be white people but they'd be and white so people, that's so. that's what we could all take solace in oh my god it's crazy i think this is the last thing i want to put to you to steel man the arguments of many diversity or dei advocates i talked to one of the best arguments was the things that we think of as diversity or the things that take up our diversity initiatives the things that preoccupy us mentally are things like diversity trainings and People who are honest in the field will admit they're not working for a number of reasons. But if we define DEI more broadly as the field itself defines it and doing things like here was a tangible example, um, having thinking about the idea of credentialism and advertising a position where we used to always say it requires a college degree. But let's think about that. Who are we including? Who are we excluding? We're going to get fewer, say, black applicants if we have that. Why not advertise the position as uh, we'd like a college degree or the equivalent of uh, service in the actual field that shows that you're an expert? That's an example of a DEI initiative that actually increases diversity, that does seem to work, and maybe without a DEI officer, that wouldn't be instituted on a corporate level. So, you know, what about that argument that the our minds fixate on some ridiculous aspects of DEI, whereas the working aspects of DEI we don't credit as DEI per se? It's a good. It's a good question. Problem is, I could I could see it just as easily going in the other direction. It, in other words, if you get rid of explicit credentials and requirements for jobs, what is left on which to judge uh, individuals? Doesn't it, in some way, open the door to the subjective judgments that bias more tends to creep into? Like, if you're a black guy with a college degree and a white guy with a college degree, you both meet the requirement. No one can yeah. no one can deny that you meet the requirement, but if right. we're now accepting everyone based on like my feelings about the candidate, then you could equally argue that introduces the possibility of bias. Yeah, I can imagine the lawsuit where the black guy doesn't get the job and he's like, "I have a doctor yeah, in this he's like, field, I, and this, this the reason yeah. I got the goddamn PhD is so no one could deny me on all these credentialist jobs." And now you're telling me the credential doesn't matter. Yeah. And I have to prove to you that I'm better than the white guy who 
you know, is from the same town as you and, and now I, whatever. So I don't know. It's a tricky, it's a tricky situation. I think there's a lot of motivated reasoning, frankly, because, um, my working theory is that black people are human beings and human beings say more <laughs> are, are highly self-interested. And when there's a policy that directly benefits us, we are highly motivated to rationalize its justice. Uh, when in fact it, it just is the case. If you are like an upper middle class person of color, like me, DEI policies directly, uh, at least appear to benefit us because it, you know, it, it, it means this, I know that this company is looking for, uh, not just any person for this particular job. They're looking for a person that looks like me and that narrows the field. Uh, it's, it's fairly rare in human history for a group of people to oppose policies that just like straight up directly benefit them on an ethnic racial spoils basis. And I think that that leads to a lot of rationalizing what is uh what is at bottom self-interest coleman hughes is a contributor to cnn and the free press his podcast is conversations with coleman if you take nothing out of this podcast besides the one sentence diversity is like love then i think i've done my job the name of the new book is the end of race politics arguments for a colorblind america thank you coleman thank you mike Donald Trump faces four criminal cases, of course, a couple of civil cases, a challenge to him appearing on the ballot in at least one state, which will have implications for other states. I need to talk about these constitutional issues with a smart person, in fact, perhaps one of the preeminent scholars in the field. I have Jeffrey Rosen, who is the CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, you know, where they drew up the Constitution. He is also the host of the We the People podcast, which I listen to and recommend, and he's out with a new book called The Pursuit of Happiness, which sort of answers the question, what the Constitution, just a bunch of words on parchment, or why is it so important? Jeffrey, welcome back to The Gist. Great to be with you. So we got a result from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which rejected, as I think many observers thought would happen, Donald Trump's broad immunity claims him essentially saying, I was once president, you could never prosecute me. And they said, for the purposes of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant. So that is settled. That's one of the boxes that are checked off. And I don't think legal scholars such as yourself thought there would be any other ruling there. But the question was one of timing. But are, is that all the appeals or questions beyond the case itself in this particular criminal matter? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, first, uh, President Trump has the opportunity to appeal this decision. If he does it before February 12th, then the trial will still remain frozen as the Supreme Court decides what to do. 
And in addition to that, there's a question of whether Jack Smith's substantive claim that uh, Trump's conduct constituted obstruction is a valid use of the obstruction statute. And the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to decide that question. Uh, So those are two of the remaining questions in this particular criminal trial. Do you have any sense of the timing of the adjudication of those questions? Uh, if the court, you know why I'm asking, will course. there be a trial before the election? Is the question. <laughs> well, yeah. we do. We do know that the trial judge uh, has now lifted March 4th as a date on which she expects to start. She's trying to move ahead as fast as she can. If the it depends how fast the U.S. Supreme Court moves, but until they say what they're going to do, we don't have a new trial date yet. Yeah. And in, is there a rule of thumb for how quickly trial judges want to move? I mean, from what I understand and from what I read, they always want to go quickly. And prosecutors are always the ones to say, yep, we're ready to go right now. And defendants almost always want to say, no, give it some time. So even if people are looking at any nefariousness from any of the actors, it does seem to me, and this might maybe a little outside the realm of constitutional law, this might be practical tactics, but does it seem to you that even if there weren't, you know, world deciding consequences to all of this, the actors involved are behaving pretty much as the actors would? Yes. And that's a really important point. The The justice system itself is on trial. It's very important for people on all sides to respect the rule of law, to recognize that the actors are doing what they're supposed to do without being swayed by politics. The system, you know, works at the pace that it works at. It can't be uh, supercharged and it's not being unduly slowed down. And this is part of the constitutionally appointed appeals process. And I do want to ask you about the question of legitimacy that is necessarily attached to what we're going to talk about next, which is disqualifying Donald Trump from the ballot via Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This Colorado case has been uh, argued before the Supreme Court, and there are a number of uh, ways they could go on this. But first, I want to go back and ask you about Sherilyn Eiffel's characterization of the case. And I'm just using her as a stand-in, but she is launching the 14th Amendment Center for Law and Democracy at Howard. So she she's a civil rights attorney and uh, a professor. And she was on this week recently, the ABC show. And she said, as a matter of law, text, and legislative history of intention and justification for Trump's disqualification. This law is very clear, very cut and dried. Would you agree with that? Well, at the National Constitution Center, you know, my job is now to describe arguments on all sides. I'm not, it's unconstitutional for me to have any opinions. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding to some degree, but um, uh, first I'll say that Sherilyn uh, Eiffel's opinion is is important. Uh, it's strongly argued, and it's shared by people like Judge Michael Ludig, who's who's uh, part of the National Constitution Center uh, Board of Trustees, who's become the leading conservative uh, critic of uh, leaving Trump on the ballot and arguing with Sherilyn Eiffel that, as a matter of text, original understanding, legislative history, and the rest, the case is clear. We have to say though that there are strong briefs filed on the other side by distinguished scholars like uh, Michael McConnell is one, a respected originalist scholar who says that text history, original understanding points in the opposite direction. And it's pretty uh, certain that the on the US Supreme Court, there's likely to be at the very least a vigorous disagreement on this question. It's highly unlikely that the justices will 
will act uh, broadly to disqualify President Trump. There are many ways that they could uh, not do that. So saying that, that the answer is clear is not something that the justices are likely to accept. Yeah, I agree with that. And I wasn't trying to imply that she's wrong per se. I think it's a quite legitimate conclusion to come to. I just think it's a difficult conclusion. And I went through this with uh, David French and we disagreed a little bit. But if I were just making the case that this is an um, ambivalent situation, I would and I will, I will do this now, I will say that the Colorado decision itself was 4-3. And the judges, the way they appoint judges to the Colorado Supreme Court doesn't seem unduly partisan. And all the other uh, lower courts who've been asked to hear the case haven't done what Colorado has Mm -hmm. done in Michigan and Minnesota and New Hampshire and California, Florida, maybe an asterisk there because there was a standing question, the main appeals court. Many, many, many courts have been asked to decide and they haven't gone as far as Colorado. So that to me would indicate it's much more of an open question than the cut and dried framing that Cheryl and Eiffel and some of the others are putting forward. But I guess, so you could comment on that, but my actual question is, does that matter if it's cut and dried or if it's uh, an ambivalent question, if Colorado decided the law correctly, is that actually what the Supreme Court will be ruling on? Well, first, I do entirely agree with you that it's not cut and dried. I mean, the the, the most uh, p- uh, politically charged constitutional cases involving election in American history, of which this is one, Bush v. Gore is another, the election of 1876 was another, are the opposite of cut and dried. They're an extraordinarily complicated and high stakes combination of constitutional and political and legal considerations. And in this case, uh, as you say, lower courts have reached lots of different conclusions. There is no clear Supreme Court precedent on the question. In fact, the one Ruling by Chief Justice Chase um, is one where the Chief Justice reached the opposite conclusion the year before about whether or not the amendment is self-executing. So it, it, it's 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 not at all clear, and there are many ways that the court could approach the question. You know, as as to and I think that's that's all there is to say that the the Colorado court. Uh, is a you know reached its decision. Other courts have reached different decisions, and the U.S. Supreme Court may decide it on grounds that are completely different than the lower courts uh, took took up to begin with. As Bush v. Gore did. Remember yeah. Bush v. Gore, the argument that uh, the equal protection rights of the ballots had somehow been violated was literally made up about two weeks before the oral argument by. Ted Olson, a brilliant lawyer who persuaded the Supreme Court to adopt it. So in these extraordinarily high stakes cases, often the court will settle on rationale that didn't occur to anyone before the argument started. And we should be open to that as we hear the arguments. So you use the phrase self-executing, and uh, that's a phrase we're hearing a lot lately. That could be the crux of this case. Define what that means. And if you think that knowing and understanding that will actually be the the way the case is ultimately decided. So the question is whether the 14th Amendment can be executed or enforced without action from Congress or whether Congress has to act before the amendment can be enforced. Uh, Judge Ludig and um, Sherlyn Eiffel and others are saying it's self-executing, meaning the amendment itself says that Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation, but doesn't say that it has to act before the amendment can be enforced. If it's self-executing, then the Colorado court was correct to 
hold a hearing about whether or not President Trump had engaged in insurrection, despite the fact that Congress never set out a procedure. The argument on the other side is that Congress has to set out a procedure. You can't have individual uh, courts or judges or states making their own decisions and procedures about whether or not someone engaged in insurrection. And here's where that precedent is so important. Chief Justice Chase, in the Griffin case uh, after the Civil War, held that if judges were allowed to disqualify Confederate um, officials who'd sworn an oath and then engaged in insurrection, you'd have to disqualify all sorts of judges and that would create chaos. So therefore, Chief Justice Chase said, Congress has to set out a procedure. And Congress did that after the Griffin procedure uh, in, in passing a law which has since expired. So so as you su- suggested, the case may well turn on this question. And if the Supreme Court says that the amendment is not self-executing, then Colorado will be reversed. Yeah, that seems pretty, putting aside what I would like to see happened, that seems pretty strong to me, right? The question is, well, has this law ever been enforced before? The answer is yes, it has. And at that time, was it just enforced by the court or was there a law? No, it there wasn't a law. And therefore, the co- court said, we can't just enforce it. In other words, I've just rephrased what you said and explained the precedent, what the precedent was. Is there a precedent for ignoring such precedent? <laughs> well, as it happens, there it's the law. So there's, there's a, often a precedent on, on the other side. And here, amazingly, the precedent was decided by the same chief justice, Chief Justice Chase, a, a very distinguished abolitionist and, you know, a, a giant of the post-Civil War period, it was a case involving whether Jefferson Davies, the former head of the Confederacy, uh, could be tried for treason. And Chief Justice Chase held that because he'd already been disqualified under Section 3, um, to try him for treason would be double jeopardy. Chase there seemed to suggest that Davies had been disqualified uh, simply by the text of the amendment, even though there was no law disqualifying him. So that's the precedent on the other side. Right. And how that would work is that if it were indeed double jeopardy, what's the first strike? What's the first instance of jeopardy? And that would be going back to his disqualification under the 14th Amendment. But since, as we established, to disqualify him, there was never a law passed. It would seem to imply that if you count that as a strike, if you count that as an adjudication or some sort of legally recognized mark against him, it came in a non-executing way. That's exactly right. Chief Justice Chase seemed to suggest it was self-executing. He himself concluded that Davis had engaged in insurrection and therefore double jeopardy attached. There there are distinctions, uh, which I don't think we have to parse much more. The, The case is unlikely to be decided ultimately by the dueling opinions of Chief Justice Chase. They weren't even decided by the whole Supreme Court. They're just evidence of the fact that it's not clear either way, which may empower the Supreme Court to hold that Congress has to act. Yeah, they're 19th century coat racks, and the (laughs) current uh, court could decide where to hang their hat, wherever they want. Well put. So I've heard many people, uh, many scholarly legal people say that it is unlikely the court will allow the Colorado Uh, decision to stand. But if so, there are two questions. One is, what will be the ruling? And then the second one is, since it is clear that 
uh, John Roberts or those who will rule in favor of overturning this Colorado Supreme Court would like unanimity or close to unanimity, how will they get there? So let's analyze each of those. What do you think the avenues for the most consensus are? And are they the best legal arguments? I, well, it's this. It's 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 complicated. Certainly, um, the most consensus, the self-executing decision, if if the justices do converge around that, could be uh, a, a a good way to converge. Um, there's also there's the question of whether or not the president is covered by the clause, but that seems unlikely to be an area of consensus because it really is a legalistic. Dodge, which you can argue any which way, but it's kind of like a textualist game about excluding the president. I wouldn't expect consensus on that, although that's possible too. Right. The, this is what, by the way, the original Colorado judge found that, oh, the president isn't covered by this because the president isn't an officer of the United States. Yes. That seems weird. It is, but when you're into textualism, uh, divorced from original understanding, there's an awful lot of discretion, as we've seen in other other cases too. There, there, there's um, another off-ramp is the court could hold that this is a political question. That's a technical doctrine, which the court invoked um, in the 19th century to say, it's not up to us to decide. Congress is assigned by the text of the Constitution the responsibility to count electoral votes. If someone's excluded running for president, Congress should make that decision, and we won't make that. That was the argument that Justice Breyer, in dissent in Bush v. Gore, said the court should have invoked, and they should not have heard Bush v. Gore at all. Uh, the trouble is, why do the opposite here that they did in Bush v. Gore and so forth? But there's a respectable argument that this is not the court's decision to make it is ultimately up to Congress. In some ways, the most contested question is, did President Trump engage in insurrection? First, was January 6th an insurrection? And did President Trump engage in it? Uh, there, there's a, The court will be asked to decide that either way, not to leave it up to individual states. Um, and that would be a controversial decision and hard to imagine a lot of consensus on that one. So they could punt that decision. They might well if they want to decide narrowly. However, yeah. um, uh, we, we had a great We the People podcast discussion of the case with Gerard Maglioka and Josh Blackman. Blackman is one of the leading defenders of President Trump's position here. Maglioka, the leading legal historian on the other side, both of them asked the court to decide the insurrection question one way or another because they said that it's not – uh, no one else can decide it. You see, they, they they seem to agree that you don't want individual state court officials making their own decisions about insurrection. You don't want states to decide under different standards, although some scholars have called for that to happen. So uh, there's an argument to be made for a Supreme Court disposition, but the court may not want to give it. Yeah, I understand that. Each side, and I've had Magliocca on the show, I can tell you he definitely thinks that any fair-minded person would, of course, say that there's it was an insurrection. And I bet the other side isn't playing a legal game. They really, truly think that a fair-minded person would decide it wasn't an insurrection. And they'd cite Brandenburg, and they'd cite precedent. So it is fascinating. Mm. Is there some third or fourth or maybe fifth <laughs> option at this point, which is to say that it is improper for us as justices to decide if it's an insurrection. There needs to be an actual criminal charge and trial to fully say there was an insurrection. And absent that, we're just not going to make a ruling. Yes, they could say that. Absolutely. There is uh, precedent on the other side. I'd say that, by the way. That's what I would say. 
<laughs> well, that's a fine decision. It would certainly solve the due process question about what an insurrection is. And it would also address the fact that throughout American history, there have been serious questions about distinguishing what John Adams called riot and insurrection. It was after with the Whiskey Rebellion, the very first uh, insurrection in American history precipitated by Alexander Hamilton's whiskey tax, that Congress first passed the Insurrection Act. And Adams was afraid that sending the troops to put down what he regarded as a riot would transform a riot into an insurrection. And similarly, after Fry's Rebellion, which was another tax rebellion at the end of the um, Adams administration and, and uh, all the way up through the Civil War. So it's this has been a serious legal question throughout American history, distinguishing between, you know, an uprising of people who don't want to basically engaging in a tax protest and don't want to obey a particular law or just or engaging in violent protest and those who are actually trying to overturn the government. And your right. solution to say that you have to have a, an actual insurrection indictment about which you're convicted beyond reasonable doubt would certainly address those due process concerns. The argument on the other side is that there have been people who have been disqualified without being convicted of insurrection, and therefore that might be a new requirement. Right. So if Adams is talking about a riot and insurrection, it seems to be implying that those are two distinct things. But you could argue grammatically, maybe it's a collective like rock and roll. <laughs> you can't separate the rock from the roll. Or maybe it's a third category of peanut butter and jelly, where they are distinct entities. But when put together on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it's a little bit different than, say, bacon and eggs for breakfast. It's all very fascinating and making me hungry. You, you say potato, I say potato, and I'm getting hungry too. <laughs> and that is Jeffrey Rosen from the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and the We the People podcast. Not the end of our conversation. We talked about so much more. Pesca Plus subscribers will hear an extended cut of the interview in which we get into the idea of legitimacy of the court. What are the costs of calling it illegitimate? But what do you do when they act without, what's the word? Legitimacy. Rosen is an important voice on an important topic. And you are important people who I think should hear that voice. Consider subscribing at subscribe.mikepesca.com. For a limited time, you could try that out for a week and then choose to no longer subscribe. But if you want to join these conversations and get the show without ads, it's subscribe.mikepesca.com. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.